NATO, Sweden, F-16s, inflation, and refugees. What do they all have in common? Erdogan and Turkey. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan won runoff elections on May 28, the second round of a presidential vote against rival Kemal Kılıç There are so many things that happened during the past few weeks, in the run-up to the vote, during, and after. We unpack it all with Sarhat Çubukçuoğlu, senior researcher at Trends Research and Advisory in Abu Dhabi. This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm your host, Nadal Tahir. Let's dive in. But first, we hear from the Nationals' own Jamie Prentice, who was in Istanbul covering the elections. When it was announced that the president had been re-elected, his supporters took to the streets. Uh, some gathered around uh, a complex in Istanbul and then Ankara, where he was giving uh, a speech. Uh, others honked their horns, drove through the streets to show how happy they were that he had been re-elected. For those who support him, even though the economic crisis has been in some way blamed on him, they, they had a faith that he would be able to solve the situation, that he would be able to deal with it. So Erdogan won the runoff elections. Um, first of all, were you expecting that there would be runoff elections or were you expecting a kind of uh, landslide win for Erdogan? I was expecting a, a runoff election. Uh, many seasoned analysts, observers uh, also thought so, but they expected the outcome to be the, to be the reverse, that Kılıç Daroğlu would uh, emerge on top, right, in the first round even. Uh, quoting the fact that, you know, there's economic downturn, humanitarian disaster of the, this, you know, devastating earthquakes, uh, all sorts of foreign policy issues on Turkey's back, as well as some of social strife and the extreme polarization in the country. They thought that, you know, Kılıç Daroğlu has got such a strong wind behind him that he would uh, outpace Erdogan easily with a few points ahead. But the result turned out otherwise, and that shows us that um, it's not just about the economy or day-to-day um, matters of uh, cost of living crisis and so on, but there is still the strong element of identity politics in Turkey that um, many commentators uh, seem to have you know, disregarded or maybe taken uh, more lightly. But yeah, in short, I was expecting a second round, but a, a closer second round. Uh, I hadn't expected the, the gap between the two to be such wide like, as to four to five percentage points. You mentioned that Erdogan's win was less about the day-to-day stuff, less about the economy, <laughs> and more about, um, let's say, you said national identity politics. <laughs> Can you elaborate on that? Because yeah. it seems that everybody who's running and everybody who's involved has some sort of nationalist agenda. So what makes Erdogan so different or special? Well, he garnered greatest number of nationalist votes in the political spectrum, more than Kılıçdaroğlu did. Uh, You know, you see nationalist parties on both sides, but Erdogan had a bigger chunk of it. Erdogan rose to power in 2002 as a a liberal politician. Uh, You know, he brought together, again, different factions from partially also from former leftist liberals and center-right, you know, parties, politicians. But over the course of time, especially after the failed coup attempt in 2016, he turned more conservative and nationalist. And so that that word especially resonates with today's Turkey because the other surprising factor about the outcome was the, the upsurge of nationalist votes till, I mean, maybe up to like 25%. So which many people were shocked with because they thought it would be the opposite that um, MHP, the Nationalist Movement Party, Erdogan's uh, coalition partner, would 
even stay below the 10% threshold. No, they, they, they stay floated above. So that shows that Erdogan knows how to play to that nationalist um, string, and he effectively consolidates that power base, that, that electoral base, probably better than Kılıçdaroğlu does. What role did the media play in Erdogan's win? Media is concentrated in a few powerful hands in Turkey and under Erdogan. So he has the, the mass media support behind him, which is important because, let's say, about 70% of people in Turkey still receive news from, uh, from TV. Uh, it's got a big share in people's day-to-day time. So the social media, if you look at like Twitter, it's pretty much like a, uh, an echo chamber. And only about 15 to 20% of people who are mostly in the opposition camp use Twitter to disseminate messages and uh, their narratives. People who vote for Erdogan don't. I mean, they use it to propagate their ideas, but not to learn or to listen to other views. They use TV mostly for that. And that's in that's concentrated in uh, Erdogan's camp. So that had a big effect. In 2016, Turkey signed a deal with the EU that has largely impacted Syrians living in Turkey. Under the agreement, Turkey said it would take all necessary measures to stop irregular migrants and asylum seekers moving on from Turkey to Europe. Anyone whose application for asylum is not accepted will be returned to Turkey per the agreement. Perhaps most importantly, though, for every Syrian returned from the Greek islands, an EU member state would accept one Syrian refugee who had been waiting inside Turkey. This deal is largely responsible for making Syrian refugees political pawns, our guest says. So um, the question around Syrian immigrants or people under temporary protection uh, in legal terms is quite complicated and it's, it's a loaded topic because ever since the start of the Syrian war, uh, you know, let's let's recall that the prime minister or the foreign minister at that time, then the prime minister, Ahmed Davutoglu, said, you know, Turkey can only accept 100,000 Syrian refugees. And that said, we won't take any more. But that was just a dream fake thing. I mean, it ended up being more than 5 million people, some of whom crossed over to Europe to went to other countries and so on. So those who stayed behind, especially after the deal that Erdogan government cut with the European Union, are mostly unskilled people. Okay, because the skilled ones went to Europe and Germany handpicked them. They said, we want this and this and this, and the rest you can have to yourself. So that was a bad deal for Turkey. If we had more skilled people remaining, I think that would have been a much less controversial story or a politicized issue in Turkey nowadays than before, than uh, than otherwise. So, um, I mean, the, the, the government has taken some measures to contain this issue, like when they give a residence permit, they say you are only living, allowed to live in that particular province and not go out unless you have a special permit and so on. It's quite telling what Erdogan's first few orders of business were on his first few days post-election. On Monday, he held a call with U.S. President Joe Biden. Here's what they talked about. I spoke to Erdogan. Oh, yes. I congratulated Erdogan. And uh, he, uh, he still wants to work on something on the F-15s. I told him... We wanted to deal with Sweden until I get that done. And uh, so we'll be back in touch with one another. But I, it was basically a congratulatory call. That was Joe Biden talking to reporters on the White House lawn. I asked Mr. Chubok Chuorlo on Turkey's stance towards Sweden being a NATO member, whether that's going to change, and whether there's going to be some sort of quid pro quo between Erdogan and Biden on that issue. 
Yeah, definitely. There will be a give and take, a quid pro quo um, a deal soon, rather, uh, because I think that was part of the deal that Erdogan made before the elections, to be, asked, to be honest, if you ask me before with the, with the U.S. government, that, you know, he promised to approve uh, Sweden's uh, membership bid and sooner or later, but uh, for sure. Um, and Sweden did things on its part as well, and it passed an anti-terror legislation law, which will, uh, which will come into effect, I think, uh, on Thursday. Uh, of course, I mean, we, we need to see it in act, how it works, what they do. Uh, but in principle, at least, Turkey has never been opposed to Sweden's membership. They always said, we, we want them, we want NATO expansion, we approve it. We just need to see some action on Sweden's. And they, they ratified the fin Finland's, uh, Finland's membership as a sign, as a positive sign that we are moving in the right direction. Uh, and in, in Biden's statement, you clearly see that he refers to, to both the F F-16 case and Sweden's membership in almost the same sentence. Right, so that shows that you know they they are tradable issues. All, all, however much they you know both sides deny that they have any link between them, there is obviously there is, and and Turkey is in a dire need of F sixteen Block seventy upgrades. Let's be honest, Turkish air power is aging. It's got F sixteen from the eighties, nineties. That yes, it's got its own modernization or upgrade program. That's moving fast, and its own indigenous uh, five fifth generation aircraft uh, also planned up. It's we saw its first uh, uh, tarmac run, uh, I think, a few months ago, and also the unmanned aircraft, the you know the armed UAVs, which are impressive. Uh, it's built this arsenal over just a few years, and has got a great tremendous amount of know how uh, in uh, a war doctrine using the UAVs. But that's not enough because if you look at Turkey's neighbors like Greece, like Israel. Egypt uh, and Iran, for instance, they've got advanced fighter jets, F F-35s, if not uh, the latest model of F-16s, like the Block 70 that Greece has. So Tur Turkey necessarily feels that it has to close that gap uh, one way or the other, either through you know, procuring uh, upgrade kits and uh, new units of F-16s or uh, through another alternative you know, uh, NATO country like the UK's uh, Eurofighter jets. Until it comes to a stage in late 2020s and uh, 2030 to fly its own fifth-generation aircraft and uh, you know start deliveries and test it and have it ready for combat operation. Uh, so till then, it had to find a way. And I think F-16, since it's you know um, already been used there for for over 40 years, 50 years almost, is the first option. And U.S. knows this, and and they don't oppose to providing it. So it's like the Sweden. So Turkey is not in principle opposed to Sweden, and the U.S. is not opposed to selling F-16s to Turkey. They just want something in return. Let's talk about Turkey-Syria ties. In the weeks and months before the elections, things seem to be moving forward between the two countries, which have had no formal ties since the war in Syria broke out in 2011, and wave after wave of refugees began flowing outwards into Turkey and beyond. Now that Bashar al-Assad is being brought back into the fold with his invitation and participation in the Arab League most recently, it's worth looking into whether Erdogan's policies vis-à-vis -vis Syria are going to change. One of Turkey's main points of contention lies along Syria's northern border, where Kurdish militant groups like the YPG-PKK operate. Turkey has officially designated them as terrorists and has said it needs to secure its own borders. So, it placed some of its own troops along the border inside Syria under the guise of self-defense. Syria is adamant that this is a breach of its own sovereignty and has demanded that the troops' withdrawal should come before any serious talks are had between the two nations. Mr. Tubuk Truorlo breaks it down for us. 
In my opinion, I think the Turkish government worked hard to cut a deal before the elections on Syria. They wanted to arrange a presidential level meeting, uh, also to score points ahead of the elections as a show off, but also to genuinely, uh, you know, put this on a path to resolution. Because signs were there that uh, Syrian war is kind of being, I mean, it's settled in Assad's favor. Okay, so Assad is now, uh, has become more popular after the earthquakes. He's received humanitarian aid, re-established ties, um, and reconciliation moved to another level with Syria's readmission or acceptance into the Arab League in Riyadh. And he met with all most Arab leaders there. But look, the next big step is for Assad to uh, come to Dubai for COP28. Yeah, so he he received an official invitation from the UAE. And if you, you know, if you look at, for instance, foreign media like in US and UK, there are complaints about this kind of what's going to happen. What if they sit in the same room with some of the Western leaders who don't want to face with Assad? You know, so Assad feels much, much stronger now. He's got a much more you know, powerful hand that he wouldn't want to trade away easily. So I think the whole situation has become more difficult for Turkey. How is this going to work out now? Erdogan has got another mandate for five years. He, he feels emboldened, empowered, uh, facing another determined Assad. So how will they sit on uh, a table and shake hands and under what terms is a big question mark. I think Turkey will find it increasingly like an uphill struggle to dictate its terms on Syria. Uh, especially on, uh, you know, YPG or PKK in, the, in northern Syria, the territorial the enclaves it controls and the return of the refugees. Assad will push hard and try to get as much uh, as he can from Erdogan in return for establishing a formal diplomatic uh, contact. We hope you enjoyed this conversation and learned a little more about where Turkey is right now, where it's headed, and what kind of legacy Erdogan is going to leave behind as Turkey's longest-serving president. This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm your host, Nada Al-Tahir. A special thank you to Mr. Sarhat Chubukchuoglu, Senior Researcher at Trends Research and Advisory in Abu Dhabi. This episode was produced by Arthur Edison and Dua Farid. If you've enjoyed this episode or you think you know someone who might, tell them about us so they can subscribe too.